Hello from Haifa and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Rabi Iqbari, a human rights attorney, a doctoral candidate at Harvard Law School, and a non-resident fellow at FMEP. It is June 2023, and I'm delighted to be here on Occupied Thoughts with Rafat Soblaban. Rafat is a human rights lawyer from Occupied Jerusalem. He holds a master's degree in international human rights and humanitarian law from the University of Essex and currently works as a human rights officer at the United Nations Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights in the OPT. But Rafat is not only joining us in his capacity as a lawyer today. Rafat and his family are also under the threat of eminent dispossession from their home in the old city of occupied Jerusalem, as Israeli settler organizations are claiming their home to be Jewish property under Israeli law. We will learn more in this episode from Rafat about his family's case, about the laws that facilitate this type of dispossession and how settler organizations are stealing the homes of Palestinians in Jerusalem and driving them out. The words Jerusalem and dispossession may ring a bell. In May 2021, a similar case in occupied Jerusalem made it to the world news cycle, that is, of Sheikh Jarrah. It has been brought to the spotlight by the Sheikh Jarrah community with Mohammed Al-Kurd, who we have had on this podcast last time, becoming the face of the movement in the English-speaking world. But across Jerusalem, many other neighborhoods and families are facing similar threats of dispossession and have not been granted the same media attention. Today, we are going to delve into the case of Noura's home, Rafat's mother. Rafat was previously featured on Occupied Thoughts a few months ago to speak about the threat of dispossession his family is facing. Today, we will follow up and understand what is currently happening with Noura's home and what developments have taken place in the past few months. Rafat, welcome. Thank you, Rabir. Uh, I'm glad to be back on Occupied Thoughts. Um, and happy to talk to you and uh, to your listeners today again. Thank you. Rafat, I'm sure many of our listeners today perhaps have not heard your previous episode or have not heard of Nura's urgent and pressing story. Can you please give us a little bit of background and explain to those who do not know the story of Nura's home? Why is your family under the threat of losing its home uh, when it's been living there for the three generations now? Sure. So uh, this is an old case that started uh, in the 70s. It's, it's been ha- taking place for around 47 years. For the first 30 years, it was Israeli, different Israeli authorities trying to drive my parents out of the house to seize it uh, for the use of settl- settlers, for a settler family to live there in our place. And since 2010, it became a settler organization that's been working to uh, forcefully evict us from the house and seize it. Um, and the house itself, it's rented uh, since at least 48, 49. Uh, we currently hold a lease dating 1953, but mm-hmm. my mother says it was leased from before. And it was rented from the government of Jordan, what's called the custodian of enemy property. And this mm-hmm. is one of two Jordanian bodies established around 48 when Jordan assumed rule of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. And during that time, they created two bodies, one of them the custodian of public property, which is property left behind by Palestinians who were fleeing the killing and the war taking place in 48, the Nakba. Uh, 
and the other the enemy property, which is property that used to belong to Jews or allegedly used to belong to Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, now, what happened after 67 and the occupation of Jerusalem, Israel assumed, uh, assumed the control of all these properties and put them under the, con the control of a body called the custodian, general custodian of public property. And this body works with different uh, Israeli governmental bodies, with Israeli settler movements, as well as Israeli courts to basically displace, forcefully displace Palestinians out of their homes, knowing that many Palestinians were already, uh, were already uh, evicted or displaced a first time in 48, some of them a second time in 67, and the mm -hmm. displacement never really stopped. It continued throughout, like between 48 to 67, and continued after 67 until today. Like the, the settler movement uh, that we are seeing, it's one manifestation of Israel's colonial uh, regime in, mm -hmm. in occupied Palestine, in all of occupied Palestine, 48, 67, and what's left of it today. This colonization yeah, yeah. movement started way in the 70s, but it has also been present before. They also colonized historical Palestine. They colonized the sea, the Mediterranean, our coastline. They, they, they colonized Al-Naqab. So this premise that occupation only exists in 67 borders, we refuse that. It's an occupation, a colonization. And this is what we are trying to fight for. Thank you, Rafat. I mean, this really highlights um, the idea first that you cannot understand Palestine uh, in a fragmented way, which was, we, we've covered on this podcast and the previous episode of Held with Muhammad uh, and the idea of an ongoing Nakba, um, which where, where the Nakba is not only an event that happened in 1948, exactly. but exactly. an ongoing structure. It continued to happen every single day. It's the daily killing, the daily displacement, the daily oppression, the daily apartheid. That's the ongoing Nakba. It never stopped. Mm. Now, you know, you mentioned the, the custodian, um, the, the, the body, basically, the, the Israeli body that assumed um, control of, of these properties after 67. I just maybe want to delve into the details and make a little bit of orders uh, of order um, in this material. You know, some may have heard about the, also the custodian for refugee rights uh, or for refugee property, um, which is an, an Israeli body that was established in 1948 uh, and assumed also, um, you know, control or custodianship over the property of refugees in the aftermath of the Nakba of 1948. Uh, this property eventually, many of it has been privatized or um, you know, transferred into different state agency and eventually privatized or used for settlers uh, or to build you know, uh, different settlements even before 1967, you know, even before the occupation of East Jerusalem, the West Bank and Gaza. Now, a similar process has started um, um, you know, it, it has started uh, uh, after the occupation of 67 of, uh, of, of Jerusalem. And this is the situation where your family now um, is finding itself, you know, fighting, right? I mean, uh, yes, yes. Like my, my parents have been doing this fight for 47 years in front of Israeli courts. We as a family don't believe that Palestinians can seek justice from the Israeli legal system. Mm. And we think it's a sham what the Israelis claim to be doing, like for the past few months, fighting for democracy and protecting this court and separation of power. I don't think that even exists. Like these courts 
have been working for decades to displace Palestinians to legalize occupation. This is what these courts do. But my mm -hmm. parents still took the fight. They worked with five different lawyers in the course of 47 years, hundreds of court hearings, and multiple of, of the presiding judges were settlers, settlers who lived in 1967 occupied borders. So this is the legal system. It's a, it's a settler legal system. Mm. And I just want to remind listeners that, um, you know, under international law, settling in an occupied territory is considered a war crime, uh, or, you know, moving settler population into an occupied territory is considered a war crime under the Geneva Conventions. And East Jerusalem is definitely considered uh, by the international community to be occupied territory. Um, I just want, you know, to, <laughs> to undermine a bit or to, to contextualize because um, Israel tries to argue that it has nothing to do with your home situation, right? That it is just a private real estate dispute. How, yes. how would you understand that? Yes, that's what the Israelis claimed in 2016. The mm -hmm. UN special procedures addressed the government inquiring about our case. And the, the response was, this is a private property dispute to which the Israeli state is not a party to. And they, mm. this is the image they try to paint to the world, that this is just uh, uh, Jews reclaiming old properties and we're not part of this. No, they are a part of this. They're the ones who, who first of all, enable uh, the settlers to take actions on the ground. They allow them to register companies, to register charities. And some of the, those charities, companies, and associations are registered not only like in, in the, in, under the occupation system, they're also registered in the US, some of them in Europe, tax deductible charities and people making donations that contribute towards the forcible displacement and evictions of Palestinians in East Jerusalem, but also settler takeover of lands in Area C. And this also corresponds with, with the different uh, policies of destruction of civilian property and demolition we see both in East Jerusalem and in Area C. We're talking about tens of thousands of structures, Palestinian structures and homes under risk in East Jerusalem alone, over 218 families under the same threat of imminent eviction, forced eviction by Israel. Um, and just around us in our neighborhood, 14 different families in Aqabat al-Khaldiyya, al-Saraya, al-Irami, and dozens of properties already, already seized. Like what's happening on, on the ground today is, is beyond like only forced displacement. It's happening on a large scale. It's systematic, it's widespread. It's ethnic cleansing and crimes against humanity. Hmm. Thank you for this clarification, Rafat. I just want to maybe ask you, can, I mean, you, you've said already that the system is built in a way that, you know, although it displays it as a private property dispute between two private parties ostensibly, but there is an illegal underpinning to that that allows this disparity for, you know, um, Jewish settlers to claim these Palestinian properties, uh, while Palestinians themselves, if I understand correctly, cannot claim properties they've lost in 1948 and 1967. Is that correct? Exactly. And this, this is why we say there is apartheid and there's discrimination in the system, because it treats you differently based on who you are. So if you're Jewish, the Israeli legal system, the Israeli state allows you to make aliyah to come from mm. the US, from Europe, to come to Palestine, to colonize, to settle, whereas the Palestinians who were displaced in 48, 67 are not allowed to come back. 
Furthermore, there's implications on the properties left behind by Palestinians, most of them seized by Israel. And if you are a Palestinian who was displaced out of historical Palestine, you're, you're counted as an absentee. And then the state, I mean, the Israeli state maintains control of, of your properties as public property, can later privatize it, can make it uh, used for development projects, etc., etc. And this is the same thing happening in Akka, in Yaffa, and in other places also inside 48. Mm -hmm. on, the, on the other hand, the, 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 the legal system also allows, under the 1970 administrative uh, law, for Jews to reclaim properties they alleged to have owned, but as Palestinians, even those who are who remained within the 67 borders are counted absentees and not allowed to reclaim properties. Whereas a Jew coming from anywhere from from the world can use an old claim for property and bring it with a law, eviction lawsuit against Palestinian families, like happening with my families and others. Mm -hmm. And this so it does not have. So if I understand correctly, it does not have to do anything with the person who have actually resided there. Any Jewish organization exactly. can decide to claim exactly. this property. This, is, this, this was my next point, that mm. the people filing to evict us, there are actually three rabbis, very interesting. One of them is the rabbi of uh, the tomb of Shimona Sadiq, which is basically mm -hmm. the tomb they're using as an excuse to take over all of Sheikh Jarrah. So it's mm -hmm. the same, one of them is one of these three rabbis. And they act as, uh, as uh, board members for a trust. And mm -hmm. they say it's a trust under the name of the people of Galicia, which is in East Europe around Poland. And they say it's meant for the service of the poor people of Galicia. Uh, so using this uh, allegation, they registered the property in the name of this, uh, this association, the Galicia Trust. And they filed for our eviction. And these people, first of all, they have no connection to the property, to the neighborhood. They're not descendants of Jewish tenants who used to live in the property pre-48. And we know mm -hmm. that, yes, Jews used to live in the property as per the tenancy lease that we as a family hold. But we also believe that the registration might have been wrong. We think that this settler association, again, who has zero connection to the property and the house, are working to evict us and other families in the neighborhood under the name of the Galicia Association, the Galicia Trust. Mm -hmm. And um, they're evicting us as Palestinians who have existed here for generations. So as people come from the US, from other places, they take over apartments, they prevent us from renovating, they make us live in houses that are falling apart on our roofs, and then they evict us. And when they do, they renovate these apartments and they bring in families from the US, from Europe, and they take our homes. This is mm -hmm. what's happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. So Rafat, before uh, I ask you about the recent developments, maybe you can make us a little bit of um, timeline or an order of what were the legal procedures? How did we get here? Your family, you, yourself, your parents um, were born in Jerusalem. How long have you been in Jerusalem? And what happened since all these legal fights started uh, to unfold? Sure, so as, as I said in the beginning, this has been happening for 47 years. Mm -hmm. um, it started with uh, the, the custodian, the custodian of public property, general custodian, the Jerusalem municipality, the antiquities department, trying to use different means to force my family out. So one of the first attempts was 
uh, the custodian claiming rent from my family and asking for increased rent, very, very high rent that my parents could not pay. And my parents had to go to court for, to fight for that until they arrived like to a settlement, to a middle ground, let's say, to be able to continue to pay the rent and we maintained the property. The okay. next attempt came in the early 80s with the municipality addressing my parents, asking for them to hold renovations in the house. My parents moved out. We rented in Beit Hanina back then. And during what happened is uh, when the renovation started, the antiquities department and the custodian addressed my family through Israeli court saying, you don't have a permit to renovate, you must stop. Now, if my family did not stop that work back in the 80s, that would have been legal excuse from their point of view to also evict us. Also, it's another Israeli body that asked us to renovate in the first place. So my family, again, had to go to court about the renovation. In the meantime, the apartment next door was taken over by Israeli settlers. The Karaki family, who were our neighbors until 84, were displaced by, court, by order of Israeli court. And when the settlers took over the apartment next door, they actually blocked our physical entrance into it. So my parents couldn't access the apartment until 99, 2000, when an Israeli judge came to see in his own eyes what my parents were talking about. And that judge ordered renovating the apartment and reopening an entrance. So we moved back in 2001. Mm -hmm. Now, 2010, after all of their previous attempts failed, they moved to a different uh, attempt. They go through the settlers and the custodian releases the property to this Galicia Trust Association. We believe mm -hmm. they work together with Ateret Kohanim and Lushna that are racist settler movements that want to displace Palestinians out of East Jerusalem and replace them with Jewish settlers, including inside the Muslim quarter of the old city, which that's happening to us, to us as a family and my parents. <coughs> mm -hmm. um, so yeah, this, this, this is how they're doing it, at least in, in our case and the cases uh, of people around us in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, and then in 2010, when they claimed the, the ownership, they immediately filed for an eviction lawsuit. And between 2010 and 2016, we go through the Israeli magistrate, district, high court. The first two courts ruled for eviction. And I think at least one of the instances, the judge was a settler uh, who ruled for our eviction back then. And then we appealed in 2016 to the Israeli high court. The high court, the Israeli high court of injustice rules mm -hmm that only my parents can continue to live in the house for 10 years. It ruled to evict me, my brothers, my sister, and then my brother's children from the house, banning us from living with my parents. And uh, also it allowed the settlers to open a new case after two years, which happened in 2018. And again, we go through three levels of courts. They also rule for eviction, eviction, eviction. And today, this is where we stand, like uh, the high court ruled for eviction, that is the settlers initiated proceedings through, uh, through the Otsa'ana Pawal, the Israeli Enforcement mm -hmm. Election Authority. Um, and they will come, uh, basically, they were supposed to come on the 11th of June, but the police didn't approve, uh, approve like the eviction date for that day. And apparently they didn't do it because they had other... Uh, other activities in Jerusalem, they were demolishing two or three houses that day. So they didn't have the enough manpower, as they said, yeah. to secure our eviction. And now the new eviction order enters into effect on the first day of Eid al-Adha on the 28th of June. 
and they gave us what they call flexible eviction, the eviction dates, meaning they don't tell you exactly which day. They give you a window from, and in our case, from 28th of June to 13th of July. They can come anytime in the morning, night, 3 a.m., 4 a.m. And the idea is to catch you at a time when there's no one with you, no solidarity activists, no media, no diplomats to bear witness to the ugly mm. reality that's taking place in occupied Palestine. So what, what I'm understanding is, and I will get to the you know, chronology of this possession that you've just you know, um, explained to us, but you've been on this podcast on Occupied Thoughts with Kristen a few months ago and spoke about um, this exact you know, same case. And back then the expected date for expulsion was March 15th, if I'm uh, remembering correctly, March 15th, 2023. We're now in June and you say that there has been uh, a change since. Uh, and you're now expecting to be, um, you know, that the, the, the uh, expulsion will take place in an unknown, exact unknown date, but in a range between June 28th to July 13th. Is that what happened? And how did it happen exactly that we've moved from March 15th to June? And are we expecting potential? Is there any other potential uh, that this will be delayed or we don't know? The 15th March was the date set by the High Court. Mm-hmm. So that was the, that deadline as set by the courts, and once my my family refused to to cooperate, refused to to evict from their own volition, so we stayed, and that's why in April they started to the execution department, the enforcement authority, to enforce the court order, saying that we have stayed beyond the deadline set by court, and then they set a date for forced eviction. That means not when you leaving voluntarily. That means. The settlers, their lawyer, arriving with uh, with Israeli security forces, both police and border guard, breaking into the house, arresting and maybe beating everyone inside, throwing mm. them outside. And usually they empty your furniture from the house. They bring a civilian contractor and you may, they make you pay for the security forces and for the civilian contractor. We were told if we don't... Uh, uh, evict from ourselves, they're going to make us pay 30,000 shekels for the costs. That's around like uh, $10,000, $9,000. And in our case specifically, the settlers actually uh, requested that it's going to be difficult logistically and security-wise to move the furniture. So if they come to evict us, let's say, first day of Eid or any time during this window, they will just throw us out of the house by force keep the furniture until a time when they see it's appropriate to give it back to us. They've done this in previous cases, and usually what they do is they hold it for a few months and they return your furniture destroyed. They destroy all the furniture and give it to you in pieces, basically. Wow. We expect if we are evicted, this is what's going to happen. Wow. Now, Rafat, you grew up, you know, you're describing a lengthy, lengthy process of going in and out of courts, and you grew up with this threat of dispossession, um, and, and you know, what many perhaps cannot clearly see immediately is that dispossession is not just an event of taking people out of their homes. In Palestine, dispossession is often a long process that can, an ongoing process that can take up to years and involves a lot of hearings, a lot of bureaucracy, uh, and a lot of, you know, court struggles. The legal process itself uh, and the threat of dispossession looming over the families becomes, you know, a central piece of of these cases and the lives of people who are uh, going through this experience. Rafat, how does it feel for you growing up 
probably all your life with the threat of expulsion, with the endless hearings in courts. What is the impact of that? Sure. So I'll start by saying that, uh, like you have said, this system of displacement expulsion operates in, in different ways. Like the uh, post evictions displacement is only one tool in the tool belt of the occupation and its policies. It works hand by hand along with, uh, with policies of this, uh, house demolitions, destruction of property, but also other administrative and legal means that Israel introduced to, uh, to make the life of Palestinians, particularly in East Jerusalem, but also in Area C, insufferable. And the aim is to create a, what's called an international law, a coercive environment, an mm. environment that's so difficult to live under, which forces you to leave and this is usually what leads to what we call forcible transfer, forcible displacement, which is, as you have mentioned in the beginning, a war crime. And this is what Israel does. They work with through different means, different policies that restrict, uh, for example, child registration, residence, residency issues, family unification. Um, they also like track your life, whether you're living in the West Bank, living between uh, Jerusalem and the West Bank, and they make it a crime, sort of. They penalize Jerusalemites in particular if they live in the West Bank. Like they are, they are, they have over six hundred thousand settlers who get tax exemptions for living in the West Bank, whereas the same legal system and administrative system penalizes Palestinians who cannot afford living in Jerusalem because. It became too expensive. It's unbearable in terms of uh, of housing uh, housing prices, which is again a policy that Israel has caused because of lack of building permits. So when Palestinians cross the wall or go live in the West Bank, they're penalized for this. It's used against them. And in our case, this was also one of the things that the Israeli system and the Israeli settlers used saying that my fa my father's uh, family has property in the West Bank. And they're saying that we don't live in Jerusalem. They never saw us. The settlers don't know us. Like the same settlers who live around us, who throw trash at us and, and water at us and at my mom claimed in court, they never saw us. They don't know us. And that's why the courts ruled for eviction, saying we don't live in Jerusalem. We live in the West Bank. And again, this is what they do. This is what the system does. And the settlers even utilized the Israeli National Insurance Agency and the Ministry of Interior to attack my family. Like at some point, they cut my family's health insurance, and we had to go to courts to, to get it back. And it's crazy in the sense that you have two different bodies of the Israeli system, legal, uh, judicial, uh, and uh, and the administrative who say different things about us and about the details of our life. And what they do basically is they put your life and, and they violate your privacy and the privacy of your family life. And they put it under a microscope, examine every small piece of it and use it against you. And this is the same as they do with like registration issues, IDs, family unification. It's, it's really a system that makes your life so unbearable and some mm. people leave, like people within my, my social circle, many of them have chosen to leave Palestine out of the difficulty of it. Not everyone has left. We're also a people who, who are steadfast and we, 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 are, we continue our fight, but not everyone can maintain this. Like it comes with a price, this struggle. It also came at a price for my family, for my parents after 47 years, for their well-being, for their health, for their mental health. And it's also mm. affecting us as well. 
So it comes with a heavy price. Of course. And you still, nonetheless, are finding the strength to organize and to resist. Um, and, and that is admirable. I mean, this is also your work and, and this is your field of work. And it must be bizarre working you know, in human rights law in the West Bank and then finding your own home turned into this human rights case under the, 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 the spotlight and maybe in reports and et cetera. Uh, how did these two exper experiences, um, you know, intersect or inform each other? And how do, how do you see these two hats you're wearing? On one hand, you know, a lawyer, human rights lawyer, on the other hand, also um, yourself fighting, you know, for your rights. I mean, exactly. Like, I've been working in the human rights field for 12 years, over 13 years, I think. Um, and this is kind of what I do in my work, in my professional life. But also I do it as, uh, like I also consider myself before being a human rights lawyer, I also consider myself a human rights activist, a human rights defender. And mm -hmm. this is what I've been doing for the past 12 years, defending the rights of others, trying to raise the voice of victims of Israel's apartheid occupation. And now it's happening to my family, knowing it's not the first time we became under this imminent risk of forced eviction. It also happened 2015-16. And back then, also me and my brother who works for the human rights, uh, within the human rights movement, we also uh, utilized our tools, our knowledge, our connections to fight against this back in 2015-16. And it is effective. Like in, if we didn't do a campaign in 2015-16 and bring diplomats and the United Nations and the press, I think the Israelis would have approved taking our house since then, since 2015-16. Like it is mm -hmm. effective. It does change the dynamic when, when the eyes are opened, when the world is watching. And for us, we're doing everything with our, within our capacity to continue advocating and fighting against the, against uh, this injustice taking place against my family, but also other families in Aqabat al-Khaldiya, Saraya, al-Irami, but also in Sheikh Jarrah, in Silwan, in Khan al-Ahmar, in Masafar Yatta, and all across of Palestine, on Naqab, and other places. Like, there, there are too many communities, Palestinian communities, under the risk of forcible transfer displacement to count on one hand the dozens, dozens of communities under this same risk. It is widespread and systematic. We're not no longer just talking about apartheid and war crimes. This is more, this is more grave and the world must act to stop it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you, you, you have launched, you know, the Save Noura's Home campaign. Um, can you tell us more about the campaign itself and where can we or our listeners, you know, uh, get updated, follow what are you doing and, um, and support you? Sure. So the, the campaign, you can find it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and most recently TikTok. Look for Save Nora's Home, Nora mm -hmm. with an O, N-O-R-A. Um, um, and basically, yeah, we post updates there. Um, there's also many other different uh, allies, partners, uh, diplomats who have visited the house in the recent months. Lots of media coverage also from local, from international media. We had also the Associated Press, the AFP, uh, French, Japanese, different kind of media, Spanish, Italian. And we're trying to let the world know what's happening with my family, but also put the spotlight on what's happening to the neighborhood. And that's mm. why we're saying, like, not, don't only save Noura's home, save also the rest of her neighborhood from being seized by Israeli settlers. 
And we're trying to also connect what's happening in our neighborhood, what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah, in Silwan, and the rest of occupied territories and the rest of historical Palestine. Because in the end, it's one struggle, it's one pain. What happens to us, to my family, is happening to the families in Sheikh Jarrah. And like one of my mom's close friends is Samira Buderi, who's one of the families in Sheikh Jarrah under threat. So within my mom's social circle, one of her friends also has an eviction order. Another has lost her home in Beit Hanina because it was demolished by Israel. They demolished a whole building in Beit Hanina like six, seven years ago with the furniture still inside. Another of my, one of my mom's friend, Naila Zaru, she used to be her neighbor, her childhood friend, and they also mm -hmm. evicted her in 1994. And this is happening within one social circle. Like, wow. um, so we see that this, yeah, we see that, I mean, we see that this is something that happens again and again and again, and from one, you know, displacement to another dispossession. And recently, you know, the, the Save Noura's Home campaign published an infographic marking Noura's home in the midst of Palestinian homes in the old city that have been seized and occupied by Israeli settlers. You have mentioned that, you know, many different organizations are behind this, ones that are not only registered in uh, under Israeli law, but also in the US. Some of them are considered 501c3s and, and are tax exempt uh, status. Others are like the one in, 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 in your case, on your parents' case, uh, is incorporated, if I'm not mistaken, in New Jersey as an LLC, a limited liability company. Um, and, you know, I, I just wonder, how does this look on a day-to-day -day basis on the ground? Who, who, who comes to support these? organizations and settlers, um, are there any, you know, um, this, beyond, you know, the support they get from the police perhaps or the border patrol that come on the day of, of, um, of eviction or fo to force the families out, um, are there any other political movements that come to support? How, how does it just look on the ground? Sure. So as, as you mentioned, yes, in our case, there's a settler who's working in the neighborhood called Eli Etal. So this settler is working to evict dozens of families. And we discovered that he acts as an agent for a company registered in New Jersey called 33 Hebron STLLC, registered as a real estate company. And he is appointed by that company as their agent. And he takes all actions on the ground, hires the lawyer, goes to courts uh, and takes care of the administrative day-to-day uh, -day things. And those, this company is also registered under the Israeli system um, as a company as well. So there is registration for it facilitated also by the Israeli government. And then as I mentioned, they, these, these guys usually act with lawsuits through lawyers to file for eviction of Palestinian families. And then the Israeli system, legal system is involved and for us as a family, we say all of them work hand by hand, like from under the table. And there's involvement of the Jerusalem municipality, of companies that work on development of the old city and the Jewish quarter, but that also do work outside the Jewish quarter in the Muslim quarter. There's also involvement of organizations like Ataret Kohanim, Ataret Lushna, that are also responsible for settlement activity in Silwan, inside the old city and other places, other areas around uh, Jerusalem. Um, and, the, and then, like, as, as you mentioned, the, the involvement of the security forces, the police, like, it's, it's, it's also the involvement of the official, official part of the Israeli government, its forces, 
And like in the recent times when, uh, when the 11th of June notice was not implemented, the few days that followed, police kept coming to the house, knocking and asking who's inside. They wanted to take uh, ID copies. And then at some point after the third time, my mom asked them, why do you keep coming? What do you want? Am I accused of something? They didn't reply. And then she asked them, who's sending you? And they said, our big guy. And she said, who's this big guy of yours? They said, Ben Gvir. And yeah. like, basically, police act under the orders of Ben Gvir, like since he was appointed in this new racist government. And by the way, for us, we say this government doesn't bring anything new. It's utilizing the same policies as all Israeli governments before did. They're just a bit more open and honest with the racism and discrimination. And if anything, what they're doing is accelerating those policies, whether it be evictions, demolitions, or the acceleration of the violence on the ground that we've been witnessing for the past uh, past six, seven months. Um, this is all heading in a dangerous, uh, in a dangerous, uh, or towards a dangerous place. If this government, if Israel is not restrained, if if it will continue to be allowed to act with impunity, the the the, the outcome will be disastrous for mm. both sides, and it must be stopped. Well, Rafat, I I I want to move from here to maybe explain a bit more or ask you about the broader um, implications of this possession in this case. Um, you and your family hold a Jerusalem ID, is that correct? Correct. Um, and part of the broader threat of this possession is also losing access to the city. And you've mentioned you know, health insurance, freedom of movement, because many of those who are dispossessed from their homes cannot afford in, and live in Jerusalem anymore. So they move behind uh, the apartheid wall into the West Bank, which then might trigger revocation of the residency status of the Jerusalem ID. Can you explain a bit more about this situation and to our listeners who perhaps do not know uh, about the challenges that are unique to Jerusalem ID holders? Sure. So the official status that Israel gives to Palestinians in East Jerusalem is a bit similar to the status of uh, of our uh, comrades in the Julan. They also have a similar status. They call it uh, permanent residency. And although mm -hmm. it's called permanent residency, it's not really permanent residency because it can be revoked, both for breach of allegiance, or what they call breach of allegiance, but mm -hmm. also if you acquire any citizenship from anywhere in the world, they can revoke, they would be in a place to revoke your residency. So you would come back to your own country as a tourist which is the situation of uh, Noura's brother, my uncle, who comes back from the UK as a tourist to his own city. Mm. And uh, the other, the other uh, thing, if you live for continuously for seven years abroad, so that means outside of uh, Palestine, or if you live in the West Bank, they can also revoke your residency. And this is a battle that's being used against all of Jerusalemites. Like you continuously have to prove what they call a center of life, to prove that you actually live within Israel's borders or like in East Jerusalem, they count as Israel from their point of view. Mm -hmm. If you don't, as I said, they penalize you for this. And it's crazy in the sense that an Israeli or a Jewish settler living in the West Bank doesn't get penalized for being in the West Bank, but we do. And mm. again, this is why we say it's apartheid. It's a racist system. It's built towards the forcible transfer, displacement, and legalizing the occupation. Right, right, right. Um, which is part of, you know, 
we we have talked in previous episode about this fragmented legal structure that classifies Palestinians in Jerusalem differently than Palestinians uh, in so-called Israel proper that hold citizenship and differently than Palestinians in Gaza and also yet another different legal status for, for those in the West Bank. Exactly, um, Frag fragmentation, fragmentation. Mm -hmm. This is what, what they've been doing to our people. And they, they put us in different uh, classes, classifications, with different right. privileges, with different, like they actually use different forms of violence and discrimination against the different classes, basically. They have different systems, different uh, provisions. It's, it's, um, it's ugly. Mm -hmm. Now, Rafat, I wish we have more time to continue this conversation, but I want to close our episode today and I want to ask you before then, what do you have to say to our listeners? What can our listeners and the international community at large, the diplomatic community perhaps, do to help? Sure. So the, the campaign we're working on, as I mentioned, it's not just about my family's uh, home. We're, we're making it also about the neighborhood, about all of the policies that Israel uses of forcible transfer, displacement, the discrimination we Palestinians face. And ultimately, what we call for is an end to occupation. We call for dignity, freedom, and justice for Palestinians. And we call for a halt, an end, an amnesty, call it whatever you want, to all of this violence and dispossession we face every day, because Palestinians are tired. And we need the world to see that. We need the world to act on that. And what we ask from everyone is, first of all, amplify our voice, follow our, our campaign pages, save Noura's home, uh, invite people to join our cause for the diplomatic and the global international community. It's time to take real action. Apartheid in South Africa didn't fall from itself. It took both the action of the indigenous people, but also the global community moving to say, no, we will not accept this anymore. This is wrong. It's not only illegally wrong, it's ethically and morally wrong, and we should challenge it. And mm. it's about time for the international community to do that. It's about time for the International Criminal Court to take serious moves in the file that's been pending for too long in front of it. Uh, it Israel needs to be held accountable. This impunity must be brought to an end. So yes, help amplify our voice, tell the media, tell the diplomatic community, write to your parliamentarian elected officials, ask them to take action. It's not just at risk, it's all of the Palestinian people who are at risk. Hmm. Thank you so, so, so much, Rafat, for sharing your time, your analysis, your expertise today. Shukran. I... Um, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMEP website for more resources related to our conversation today. And please make sure you are subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And with that, I'm Rabi'i Ghbariyi, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Mm -hmm.